0: Well, do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Sure, you might say to yourself, who doesn't want to be great? Well, who do you think of when you think of greatness? Perhaps it's someone famous, a politician, an actor, or a musician, or maybe a sports figure, or maybe someone closer to home, family, or a friend, or an expert at your work or in your field of study. If only I was great, my life would be easier. People would value me more, I'd be significant. And people would finally appreciate me, I'd have purpose and I'd be secure in life. But chasing after greatness is tiring. It's frustrating. You have to push, you have to hustle, you have to compete with those around you. It feels like an uphill battle. And every day is a grind, because you know, not everyone can be great. We know only a few can be on top. Only a few can get paid the big bucks. Only a few can have those heavyweight jobs. Only a few can be famous. Only a few can run countries. Only a few can be great. But surely, I'm one of them. I can be great. You see, if we desire the greatness the world offers, one of power and prestige, and we actually obtain it, it won't satisfy. There will always be someone greater, someone more skilled, more talented, more beautiful. And many who are great in the eyes of the world are actually miserable. They're miserable inside. Longing to be great isn't a bad thing. That's why I asked you, do you want to be great? But it depends on the kind of greatness that you desire. And today Jesus asks you the same question. Do you want to be great? And when you say yes, it's okay. He says, good, you want to be great? Let me tell you how. Let me tell you how to be great. But Jesus' answer is very different to the answer of the world. Jesus' answer is actually liberating. So let's get into our passage and find what Jesus has to say. You'll see up on the screen uh, three points we're going to head through today, three sections of our passage if you want to follow along. So Jesus, the Son of Man, the Suffering Servant. So in Mark's Gospel, in the early chapters, we deal with Jesus' ministry centering around Galilee, which is in northern Israel. But since chapters 9 and 10, we've seen that we're now heading south on the road towards the cross. And more specifically here in verse 32, we learn that Jesus' destination is Jerusalem. And this destination is significant because this is where all the religious leaders live. The same religious leaders who have already falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy back in chapter 2 and breaking the Sabbath law in chapter 3, both punishable by death. And despite the certain opposition that Jesus will face in Jerusalem, he marches out confidently in front of his disciples. They follow behind, as we see in verse 32, afraid and astonished. They know something big is about to go down. And they're not wrong. Something big is about to go down. Jesus' mission will be completed in Jerusalem. This is why he's come. But they haven't understood his mission yet. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus has already told them that the Son of Man, that is, himself, will be delivered to the Jewish leaders. They'll falsely accuse him and condemn him to be put to death. They'll accuse him as a criminal. He'll die, but he'll rise from the dead. Both times they haven't understood what he means, so Jesus takes the 12 apostles to the side, and he tells them for the third time what his mission is. So let's read Jesus' mission statement together here in verses 33 to 34. Jesus says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Although we've heard a lot of this before, If we look closely, we can find some new details Jesus hasn't mentioned yet. In verse 33, Jesus mentions being handed over to the Gentiles. That is, Jesus will be condemned by the Jews and then given to the Romans to be crucified. So here we see both Jews and Gentiles working together in partnership to put Jesus to death. And this is a vivid reminder that the whole of humanity has rejected God's chosen one, God's Messiah. It's not just the Jews who hated Jesus. It's not just the Gentiles. It's both. It's the whole world conspiring to put Jesus to death. But what's even more fascinating is that in verse 32, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is a title. And it's Jesus' way of saying, hey, you know that person called the Son of Man mentioned in the book of Daniel chapter 7? The man was divine, And has all authority over everyone and everything in heaven and on earth. That's me. I'm the son of man. So Jesus is alluding to the fact that even though he is the son of man and has all authority over everyone and everything in heaven and on earth. He's still willing to suffer and die at their hands. At the hands of his creation. The Son of Man with all authority will be rejected by humanity. Hmm, It's a bit odd, isn't it? So let's look at the next detail found in verse 34. This is a new one. Jesus mentions that they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. This is another reference Jesus is making about himself. It's a reference this time to the book of Isaiah from the Old Testament a reference to a man called the Suffering Servant of God, who is beaten, mocked, and spat on, and dies for the sins of God's people, and then rises from the dead. So up on the screen you should see Isaiah 50, 6-7. Let's read it. Speaking of the Suffering Servant, it says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, because the sovereign lord helps me i will not be disgraced now we're going to move to a later chapter chapter 53 verse 11 also speaking of the suffering servant after he has suffered he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities So Jesus is bringing side by side these two pictures, the son of man from Daniel and the suffering servant from Isaiah. He's applying them to himself. And that begs the question, how can Jesus be this glorious, all-powerful son of man and yet suffer such a shameful death, crucifixion? How can Jesus be this exalted savior, yet be rejected by the world? How can Jesus be a loser in the eyes of the world Yet great in God's sight. How do these things go together? Well, we'll come back to answer these questions at the end, because it's key to understanding Jesus and His mission and how we should respond to Him. So this brings us to point two: the world loves greatness, and so do we. Let's move on. So here we're going to see uh, we're going to meet James and John who have a request of Jesus. Let's check it out. Read along with me, verses 35 to 37. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want, for you, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In James and John's Jewish minds, Jesus is moments away from entering Jerusalem. He's going to kick the butts of the Romans who are oppressing the Jewish people. And then Jesus is going to reign on his throne. So in verse 37, they ask for thrones next to Jesus. They see Jesus as a great warrior king. And they're trying to rush in early to get their seats next to him. They want to be great and glorious and rule over the Romans by Jesus' side. And what's clear is they are so eager to be great that they completely missed the point about who Jesus is and what his greatness is like. They ignored what Jesus had just said about them, about his impending suffering and death in Jerusalem. And that's why in verse 38, Jesus says that they don't know what they're asking for. Jesus goes on to mention his suffering again. In verse 39, he speaks of a cup he will drink and a baptism he will receive. And these are symbols referring to the suffering that Jesus is about to go through at the cross. He's making a point to the disciples that suffering goes hand in hand with greatness. That suffering is part of being his disciple, part of following him towards the cross. And he says in verse 39 that they they can't have seats next to him on his throne because it's not his role to assign those seats. God the Father has already assigned these seats. And this shows us that Jesus, although, again, the king of the universe, he submits to the Father, his Father. The Father and the Son work in unity as a team. They're both equally great, and they don't have to fight over who's greater. But in verse 41, a fight breaks out the rest of the the apostles start fighting over who is the greatest among them. They're angry that James and John were trying to steal positions of greatness for themselves before they could get in on it. And this this shouldn't be a surprise, because back in chapter 9, they'd already had a really big argument over who was the greatest among them. So it's not just James and John who desire to be great. It's all of them. And Jesus knows this, so he calls them together, and he tells them, Hey, it's not just you. The rest of the world also desires to be great. They desire greatness. He says in verse 42, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high uh, officials exercise authority over them. The Gentiles want greatness and power, and when they get it, they use it for their own selfish motives. They oppress those they rule over. So it's the Jewish disciples and the Gentile rulers who have this desire for greatness. And they both want greatness and power for their own prideful and selfish reasons. The Jews, they want to rule over the Romans. The Romans, they want to rule over the Jews. You see, the whole world wants greatness, but of the wrong kind. They want it for their own selfish desires. This is what our world believes today. Nothing's changed. Greatness is all about oneself. When we think of greatness, we think of ourselves. We think of those on top. And if we're honest, we're exactly like the disciples. We're like the world. We might not want to admit it out loud, but secretly we want to be great. We want to be better than those around us. When we see others who are great, we wish we could be like them. But I think James and John really show us that this sort of greatness distorts our view of the world. They couldn't see who Jesus was, they were too busy focused on themselves. They were busy hustling and jostling, but they didn't even realize they were knocking down their brothers, their closest friends in the process. So this hunger for worldly greatness is destructive. And we know many world rulers and leaders, celebrities, people in authority, who are ruthless to get to the top. And they remain selfish to stay there. The greatness of the world is not a good thing. It's not as good as we think it is. But we still desire it. Again, longing to be great isn't a bad thing. But it depends on the kind of greatness that we desire. Selfish greatness is harmful. But Jesus is about to give us an alternative. He's going to explain what true greatness is. So let's keep moving. We're at point three now. You'll see that on the screen. True greatness can be yours. So far we've seen how the disciples along with the rest of the world are hungering for greatness, but we've also seen that their view of greatness is misguided. It's about being on top, having power and being served by those under you. It's selfish. But Jesus doesn't strongly rebuke his disciples. He actually goes on to tell them how to be great. Read with me verses 43 to 44. Jesus says to them, After explaining who the Gentiles are, he says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus knows the disciples want to be great and he affirms it. He says, Let me tell you how to be great. Let me tell you how to be great. If you want to be great, you must not be like the people of the world, you must be a servant. If you want to be the greatest, you must be a slave. And what Jesus means here is that the definition of greatness in God's sight is different to the world's. It's not about being on top, it's not about being glamorous. That's not what makes someone great. It's about being on the bottom. That's what's important. Ultimately, greatness is about the service of others. Which means, in Jesus' kingdom, a slave can be greater than a king. You know, like Simon put up on the slides, cleaning the toilet, being a servant can can make you greater than the king. A taxi driver can be greater than a prime minister because greatness equals service. That's so important. Let me say it again. Greatness equals service. A truly great person serves others. They're not like the leaders of the world who use their positions for themselves. That's not good. That's not great. It may appear great on the surface as they puff themselves up and get all the attention, but the things they do and often the choices they make are ultimately for them and for the good of those select few around them but not for the good of those they rule over. If you want to be great, Jesus says, you must be a slave of all. You must be someone who serves all kinds of people, not just those like you. But why? Why should the disciples who receive Jesus and follow him live differently? Why are they to serve all people? Why should Jews not just serve Jews and and Romans Romans? Verse 45 has the answer. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Because Jesus served all sorts of people. He gave his life as a ransom. That is, to purchase people out of slavery, from a life to sin and misery and death. That means those who receive him and identify with him as king, they show their allegiance to him by living his way. Those in his kingdom live this new way of greatness through service, like their king has done. So verse 45 is really key to this whole passage, and it actually answers the questions we had back at the start. Remember we asked, if Jesus is great, how can he suffer? You know? If he has authority, how can he be rejected by the world? And is Jesus actually great if he dies in this way? Verse 45 tells us Jesus is great precisely because he suffers in the service of others. Jesus is great because he doesn't oppress people and take their lives by the sword. He's not served by them. Instead, he serves them. He gives his own life for them. And he doesn't ask them to pay off their debt. It's impossible to enter his kingdom that way. Instead, he pays the debt for them. He pays the ransom price. It's not like Jesus was like up in heaven and he begrudgingly said, Okay, okay, let me just put my greatness to the side for a moment while I go down and die a shameful death. And, and then I'll rise from the dead and I'll become great again. No, he didn't choose a lesser option. He chose the greatest way to show his glory. He chose the best option. He chose actually the only option that's consistent with his character. Sacrificial service. That's at the heart of who Jesus is. He doesn't show greatness in the way the world shows greatness. In the way our leaders show greatness. Not through power, authority, and oppression. He shows it In the way God always designed greatness to be displayed and to be used for the good of others. You see, Jesus offers those in his kingdom a better way to satisfy their desires of greatness. It's loving others through service, just as he did. So Jesus asks you Do you want to be great? Then serve others. Do you want to be great? And serve others. As a Christian, you don't need to serve others to earn God's favor. It's not about how much you do. You don't need to do this to get into God's kingdom. We serve others because we're already in God's kingdom. We serve others to show them who our king is. This is what our king is like. He serves all people. So we do the same. And this is our identity. There can be so many ways you could apply this to your life. Um, but I thought I might just share one of the ways I've reflected on it, how it's changed some of my thinking and changed my life, and perhaps after you'll do the same. So before I was a Christian, my life was miserable. I had very bad depression, and I felt like I was a zombie, living dead, walking around in darkness and confusion. But I thought, If only I could just make a name for myself, if only I could be great, then I'd be happy. I thought if i become a rock star, then people would notice me. I'd have money, I'd have friends, life would be worth living. So I traveled to see different bands around the world. I traveled as far as, as Belgium and Romania. Everywhere I went, I had my, my iPod in. I was listening to music. I watched tutorials on YouTube. I practiced every day. I recorded songs in my bedroom, and I enrolled in a music degree. I didn't care what the haters had to say. I truly believed I could become great. But secretly, deep down, in moments of honesty, I knew it was likely I wouldn't be great. It doesn't really happen to many people. And I didn't really like competing with those around me who were more talented. But I kept believing the lies I heard from the worlds: Anyone can be great if you just practice enough. But then on January 4th, 2017, I heard the gospel. That Jesus had given his life to die in my place for my sins. He paid that ransom to set me free from slavery to sin, from slavery to this idol of greatness. I was actually just down here at the beach, Summoning Park Yacht Club. I went in the water. I prayed to God. I told him about my sin, my failures. I believed in Jesus and my life changed. I sold all of my guitars and my amps and my music equipment. I ripped down all my music posters. I threw all my CDs and records in the bin. I went to my closet, got my 20 black. They're always black. Band t-shirts and threw them in the bin. Why this changed? Because God had saved me. I didn't deserve it. Even though I loved music more than God. But now he'd given me something achievable a meaningful greatness to pursue the service of others. I joined Trinity Church Adelaide, and instead of being up front on stage, I served behind the scenes on the sound desk. And I loved being there because I no longer had to strive for an impossible greatness I couldn't reach. I could just rest in the freedom of Christ and contribute behind the scenes, quietly, meaningfully, to the lives of those around me. Jesus had shown me a better way, Serving others instead of serving myself. And I love that in God's kingdom, anyone can be great, anyone can serve. So whether I'm with my family, with my friends, at church, here at church, or at Bible college, at the shops, walking down the street, interacting with others online, I can be a servant. But it is hard. Serving others is hard. It's full of suffering, as Jesus just said. And I'm not perfect. I still occasionally daydream of being a rock star. But then I remember that even if I achieved that greatness, it would be fleeting and temporary. But serving others can have eternal rewards. Like when you pray for someone or share the gospel with someone. Tell, G- tell them that Jesus rocks the world. Sharing the gospel with a stranger can allow them to receive eternal life. That's music to my ears. That's greatness worth pursuing. So in summary, Jesus displayed his greatness not by being served like an earthly ruler, but by giving his life to free us from slavery. From slavery to sin, so that we can be great by serving others. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, you are great. You are glorious. And your Son, who is glorious and equally great with you, came to us. You sent him. He willingly came as the mighty Son of Man who has all authority in heaven and on earth over everyone and everything, but who was also willing to show that greatness and that authority, not by being served by us, but by serving us, giving His life to set us free from sin and slavery. We praise You that we're part of Your kingdom when we receive You, that we're part of this new way of life, and that in Your kingdom all of us can be great. We don't have to knock one another down. We pray that You would guide us and lead us by Your Spirit to see those we can serve, to humbly serve them for Your glory, to exalt Your name, that Your greatness and our greatness will last for all eternity. So we praise you for your word this morning. We thank you for Jesus' Jesus' greatness and that he shows us a better way of life. In his name we pray. Amen.